This is John Quinn, and this is Law Disrupted. Today, we're speaking with two of my Boston partners, Bill Weinreb and Mike Packard, who have just gotten a phenomenal result for our client, Jack Zhao, in a Varsity Blues prosecution in federal court in Boston. Many of you will have read about the Varsity Blues prosecution involved. It's a series of prosecutions of about 60 charged individuals who are alleged to have bribed admissions officers and others at various colleges and universities around the country in order to get their children into the universities. And so some of the people who were prosecuted were also coaches and people who got those bribes. There were about 60 people who were charged. Of the parents who were charged, there were only four who went to trial. The others all pled guilty. We represented one of those parents, Mr. Zhao. The others who went to trial, two were convicted, one was acquitted. And the one the one who was acquitted, it was not in a varsity blues prosecution per se, as I understand it, but sort of a spin-off adjacent prosecution. Is that right, Mike? That's right. Much like us, they were uh, cases also involving alleged bribery in connection with college admissions, but not involving uh, Rick Singer, who was the gentleman at the very center of that varsity blues prosecution. But the remarkable result here is after all these other parents had pled guilty, our client did not plead guilty, went to trial, and obtained an acquittal. That's really a, an incredible result, Mike and Bill. I mean, tell us a little bit about this case. What, what is the background to it? What were the, what were the allegations against our client? Let me just say, John, thanks for inviting us to do this. It's a pleasure to talk about this case. Uh, it was an incredibly gratifying case for, for Mike and, and me to get to do, and uh, we think it has a lot of great lessons for criminal practitioners. So in this particular case, our client, Jack Zhao, and Harvard's fencing coach, his name was Peter Brand, were charged by the Boston U.S. Attorney's Office with bribery and honest services fraud. The government alleged that Jack, our client, had secretly paid Coach Brand approximately $1 million to recruit Jack's two sons, Eric and Edward, onto Harvard's fencing team to facilitate their admission to Harvard. But from day one, although both men, Jack and Coach Brand, admitted the payments had been made, they denied that they were bribes. Coach Brand told Harvard when they asked him about it, and Jack told the Boston Globe voluntarily when they asked him for an interview that uh, he, Jack, had loaned Coach Brand the money out of friendship and nothing else. But the government just didn't believe that. The Varsity Blues case uh, with Rick Singer at the heart of it had just broken in the press, and the government was primed to believe that any kind of financial dealings between a parent and a coach must be nefarious in some way. And furthermore, there were some facts involved in our case that um, I'm sure gave the government reason to believe it was onto something. Primarily, Jack's sons had both been trained by a fencing coach named Alexander Rijek. And uh, that's an important name. He figures in prominently in this case. Jack had once agreed in writing to pay Rijek a million dollars if both of his sons were admitted to Harvard. Now, everybody agreed there would be nothing illegal about that. Jack Rijek didn't work for Harvard. He was just a, a club coach who was, who was uh, coaching Jack's sons. But in the event, Jack didn't pay Rijek a million dollars. Instead, when Jack's older son, Eric, was getting ready to apply to Harvard, 
Jack donated a million dollars to a fencing foundation run by Rijic. And Rijic, in turn, donated $100,000 of that money to a foundation run by Peter Brand. And the government naturally believed that Rijic was funneling money from Jack to Brand as a bribe. And then a couple of years later, when Jack's younger son, Edward, was being recruited to Harvard, Jack purchased Coach Brand's home for several hundred thousand dollars more than it was worth and paid off over $400,000 of Peter Brand's bills, uh, loan obligations, other expenses. And in the end, the total amount of money involved was close to a million dollars. Kind of sounds like a bribe to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sure did. It did to the government, too. And they were so certain that it was a bribe that even though initially all three men, our client, Jack, the club coach, Alexander Rijic, and Harvard's coach, Peter Brand, denied any wrongdoing, they kept looking to find someone to cooperate and say that it was a bribe. And uh, eventually, Rijic obliged. He agreed to cooperate with the government in exchange for immunity for some other things he had done. And he ultimately testified that he was the middleman in a bribery scheme and had agreed to funnel a million dollars from Jack to Coach Brand in exchange for recruiting Jack's sons. Sounds to me like going into this, you kind of have uh, tough evidence to deal with that you're going to be seeing. But before we get into the case, just a, a, a general question. When I first heard about these cases, my reaction was, how is it that it's a federal crime if I bribe a college to get my children into college, a private college? We're not talking about a public university. It's, it's not intuitive to me that that's a federal offense. Mike, can you kind of explain uh, you know, how the government uh, charges that, how that can be portrayed as a federal offense? So the... Honest services fraud statute has been the subject of like, considerable litigation up all the way up through the Supreme Court on multiple occasions, uh, and its contours have been narrowed over time. This is an example of the federal government pushing to, I think, take on a, a position that in some defense attorneys' minds is expansive, more expansive perhaps than the statute would be permitted to if it got back to the Supreme Court as it's currently con constituted. But at bottom, what they've said is individuals who are employed by these institutions owe a duty of honest services to those institutions to essentially make decisions in the best interests of their employers. And in this case, we're talking about athletic coaches having a duty to recruit individuals based upon their actual merits as athletes, students, as legitimate contributors to the school and the program. In the larger Varsity Blues case, virtually all of the children of the parents who were prosecuted were not legitimate athletes. They either had never even played the sport in question, and you had instances of you know, people having Photoshop pictures of people in swimming pools pretending to be water polo players when they never had been. Uh, so you had people who weren't actual athletes at all or had been merely recreational athletes, in any event, were not legitimate athletic recruits, but were getting designated as athletic recruits by coaches who were on the take. Mm -hmm. And so that is the idea that they breached their duty of honest services by recruiting folks in exchange for money. Uh, our case, as you'll hear, was a little different because, yeah, we had legitimate student athletes. Jack Zhao's sons, Eric and Edward, were both nationally ranked fencers, elite students, 
So we, that's how we were a little different. This honest services fraud seems I mean, very broad. If you, in other words, you're you're potentially guilty of a, a federal crime if you take action to kind of suborn any employee's uh, performance of their duties ethically or honestly, that that could be portrayed as a federal crime. I'm going to pass it to Bill because this is one of his favorite <laughs> topics. Actually, yeah, I don't want yeah, to spend so- too much. I don't want to spend too much time about this. I want to talk about your case in the trial, but I just find this really interesting. Yeah. So, you know, honest services fraud traditionally has been a statute used to prosecute politicians. Um, it's always been understood that that people in government, elected officials, owe a fiduciary duty to the public to perform their duties honestly and in the public interest, not in their own personal interest. And if they take money, yeah, that I understand. Them, right. So, um, but even from even uh, you know going back decades, private individuals, people in, in relationships who owed fiduciary duties um, because of contractual relationships, like employer-employee, or because of um, corporate-type relationships, like being a director or an officer of a corporation, um, it was understood that they also owed a duty of honest services. The director has to perform his or her duties honestly. The employee has to perform his or her duties honestly. And taking money, uh, particularly in secret, to perform those duties in your own interests rather than in the, the interests of the person to whom you owe the duty, that was also seen as a violation of honest services fraud. That was challenged as being overly broad. And the Supreme Court ultimately narrowed the statute and said that it only applied in cases that involved bribery schemes, bribery or kidnapping. All right, so let's get back to the case that you tried. How did mm-hmm. our client Jack Zhao get to you? So Jack is a businessman. He founded a telecommunications company called iTalk Global. And iTalk Global was a client of the firm. When the Boston U.S. Attorney's Office brought this case, uh, Jack did what people often do in those situations, which is call his contact here at Quinn, um, who handled iTalk's business and said, do you have a guy in Boston? That's how the case came to the Boston office. And and you, uh, you're a modest guy, I know, so you won't blow your own horn. But I mean, you were formerly the United States attorney there in the Boston office. You knew, know people in the office there who used to be your colleagues. And it would be natural that if he asked who at our firm in Boston would be appropriate to handle this case. Obviously, it would your name would come up. Yeah, so I, I was I was uh, very grateful that um, the, the my partners out in California who who knew Jack uh, had confidence in me and, and sent the case my way. All right. So tell us about the trial and uh, you know the lead up to the trial, how things played out. First, let me begin. How long was the trial? was nearly three weeks, full days. And how long was the prosecution case and how long was the defense case? It was about half and half. Uh, we, we split the time between us. Did you do any type of mock jury or focus group exercises to, or any surveys to try to figure out what kind of jurors you were looking for? So we, we did um, talk to some of the people who we trust in these matters, and we did get some some good advice and some good feedback on uh, experiences they had had in similar types of cases. And, you know, some some of the advice was what you might expect, which is, um, 
you know, look for people who who will not be necessarily offended by the idea that uh, people, you know, may start in an early age to try to position themselves to to get recruited by a school by training um, people who have the sort of the opportunities to pursue some of these different paths of of making yourself interesting to a school or, or desirable to a school that not everybody has. I mean, what did you think were the biggest challenges you faced? You talked about this cooperating witness you had. Obviously, that was a big challenge. What did you think were the biggest challenges and how did you deal with them in the trial? Can I chime in on that, Bill? Yeah, sure. I think the the two biggest challenges we faced were first that cooperator and the fact that they, the government had a quote unquote insider ready to say exactly what they wanted the government to say. And then second was simply the amount of money and the timing of the payments just on their face. How much was the total amount of money? All in about a one and a half million dollars in a stream of payments. And that comp- that included Jack Zhao paying for Coach Brand's mortgage, paying off his home equity loan, paying off his, st- his son's college tuition, his son's college loans, uh, a $34,000 car loan, sewer bills, a whole host of payments, all in and around the time that his sons were poised to be recruited, buying Coach Brand's house for hundreds of thousands of dollars more than it was assessed, and then selling it a year later for hundreds of thousands of dollars in losses. You just look at those facts on their face, and you can see why the government thought what they thought, why they brought the case. Yeah, those are so, those are what you call bad facts. <laughs> those are bad facts. And, and you put on top of it a bunch of text messages between Alexander Rajik, the cooperator, and Coach Brand that on their surface, you know, show them discussing money in connection with the Zhao's. And you think this is a bribe scheme. Right. But the only answer you say, how did we solve it? Was we had to do our own investigation. Well, tell we us had about to that. tell the full story. Yeah, I, I know in the criminal world, I'm, of course, a civil law practitioner, and I'm used to, you know, get all the documents, send some interrogatories, get all the testimony, take people's depositions. I know in your world, you don't have any of that. So tell us about that. What what kind of investigation did you do? Sure. Yeah. So as you just to level set it, as you say, in the civil context, both parties are generally equal footing in terms of their ability to get documents, compel testimony in depositions or otherwise the criminal world bears no resemblance to that. The government has essentially unlimited power to get grand jury testimony, interviews, documents from parties wherever and whenever they want. Defendants, once charges are brought, have a much narrower aperture uh, of means to get information. You have uh, Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 17, which gives is our analog to rule 45, it's our subpoena power, but it's not the same. There are very strict requirements that have to be met for a defendant to get documents. We can't depose people in the criminal system. You have to rely on people voluntarily being willing to sit down and meet with you. And so what we did was we tried to approach it like prosecutors, which included witness interviews, a ton of them, rule 17 subpoenas strategically, and then even non-subpoenaed document requests to parties that we built relationships with. And I guess the, some of the key points or takeaways on that would be on the witness interview front, we started early and often. 
what happens in criminal cases is that once charges are brought, generally, a defendant becomes radioactive. People who know them are afraid. They're afraid of talking to defense attorneys. They're afraid of coming under the suspicion of the FBI or whatever federal law enforcement agency is involved. And that pressure and that fear generally ratchets up the closer you get to trial. So what we did was as soon as the charges came down, we began interviewing people early when it was still sort of an amorphous, oh, yep, the charges have been brought, but who knows what's going to happen when the pressure was low we began a process of talking to every person we thought would be a likely government witness, finding people who could help tell our story to get more facts out. And that was critically important because the result was we ended up at trial with a laundry list of witnesses who had helpful things to say that the government didn't know about because we actually talked to many people that they never spoke to. Perhaps they should have, but they did not. Yeah, the the other side of the uh, difference in pre-trial disclosure discovery processes, you're doing this investigation and the government doesn't isn't necessarily going to know what facts you've put together, what witnesses you've found, what documents people have given to you. Is that fair to say? It is fair to say. You do have to be smart about how you go about doing it because uh, you know there is, for example, uh, Rule 26.2, which if you just take down verbatim statements from a potential witness, at some point before trial, you're going to have to turn over those statements that you've taken down. So if you want to avoid that, you have to not write down all of the things that people say. And that creates more work. That creates risks because somebody might change their story and you can't control them. You might forget what somebody had to say. But it, the risk of writing it all down, in our view, generally is uh, that risk is greater than the reward of writing it down. So we have to be smart about how you document your investigation to avoid premature disclosure in a way that's going to hurt your case. In the event, in the trial, was was there actually a surprise for the government that you had you adduced some witnesses or some evidence and some facts that the government didn't know about? They heard for the, they heard for the first time in the trial. There were a bunch. I'll, actually, I'll turn it over to Bill if you want to give them perhaps the biggest example yeah. of just some opening so, statements. So, <laughs> so by far... Uh, the biggest surprise was um, that the government was unaware that these payments that Jack had made to Coach Brand were actually a loan. Where lo there had been an agreement that Coach Brand would pay the money back when his uh, elderly mother uh, passed away. He, he knew that he was going to come into an inheritance that would cover the amounts that Jack had lent to him. And in fact, um, after the, the two men were indicted, uh, his mother sadly did pass away. Uh, he did come into that inheritance and he did pay back the money in full. And the government was completely unaware of that. They could have found out. To me, that's astonishing. To I me, know. that's such an important fact and how yeah. the government didn't pursue that or know that is just remarkable. Yeah, well, uh, the government is, you know, used to a uh, process in which they investigate the case, they charge it, and then from their point of view, sort of the facts are frozen, you know, because everything is what happened in the past. It's not what's happening post-indictment. Um, but this was the unusual case where, where a post-indictment event was of critical importance. And equally important to the fact that, that the money was a loan and had been paid back was that the government 
didn't know that and so didn't reveal that to the jury in their opening statement. And I think that, uh, you know, in, in a criminal case, unlike in a civil case, the burden of proof really matters. Um, jurors in a criminal case expect the government to be coming in with slam dunk evidence that eliminates every doubt about the defendant's guilt, because that's the standard proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And if the government comes in and seems not to be aware of critical facts that exculpate the defendants, that really you know, helps level the playing field and helps the defense keep in the jury's mind the possibility that there's more to the story than, than they've heard from the government. I, I, I have to believe that in the jury's eyes, the government took a real credibility hit when they gave up. They got up and gave their opening statement to the jury and talked about all these payments and were ignorant of the fact that there was a deal that this was a loan and it was repaid. And those are facts that you disclose the jury hears for the first time from you in the defense opening. The jurors have got to be asking me, well, what else is the government not telling me? Exactly. exactly. That's exactly right. Exactly right. And then we, we had something else that the government didn't know about. That was the fact that Jack Zhao, our client, um, is just a um, extraordinarily generous person, almost beyond uh, belief. And uh, if it weren't that we had, you know, very, very credible witnesses take the stand and testify about his acts of generosity over the years, um, I think it would have been hard for the jury to believe, but we were able to find those people and prove that this was not unusual for Jack to make to loan extraordinarily large sums of money, especially compared to his own net worth at the time he was making these loans uh, without any written loan agreement, no set repayment date, no interest payments, just out of friendship and trust. He had done it again and again um, over the course of 20 years, six-figure loans to people who, you know, were friends, but not like his closest friends. Um, he was just, uh, you know, the, the quintessential soft touch who couldn't say no to friends. And so, you know, that, that was an important fact because otherwise the jury's got to be asking themselves, who does this kind of thing? Who, who even right. lands somebody yeah. a million dollars? Was was there a fight over whether that evidence of other similar transactions would come in? As I listen to you, I'm trying to think, okay, how do you get this in? Mm -hmm. Exactly. If there's a takeaway for defense practitioners listening in the white collar space, maybe this is the most essential one. So there's federal rule of evidence 404B. It is a rule that allows parties, generally the government, to use other acts to show somebody's intent in the instant case. So the typical example would be the government is prosecuting somebody for being for possessing cocaine with intent to distribute it. That defendant has a prior conviction for possession with intent to distribute cocaine or a prior action of actually dealing cocaine. And the government enters evidence of that prior act to show that this defendant on, in the instant case had that same intent, the intent to distribute it. That's why he possessed the drugs. In our case, we use that same rule in the reverse. So defendants don't often do it, but they can use rule 404B to put in evidence of their own good conduct if it speaks directly to their state of mind. And so the government obviously 
stomped its feet and said, there's no way this specific instances of Mr. Zhao's generosity should come in. It's barred by Federal Rule of Evidence 405, which says, in fact, you can't prove character through specific instance conduct. You can't do it. The answer is 404B. If you can do as we did and show that the prior acts are sufficiently similar, that you're not trying to prove general character, what you're trying to show is specific intent on a specific occasion. And in the bribery context, I mean, we, we searched far and wide for the best case law. There was really one case that was directly on point, a case called US v. Marlinga out of uh, the Eastern District of Michigan, where a state prosecutor was charged with giving favorable treatment to several defendants in exchange for campaign contributions for bribes. And that defendant, Mr. Marlinga, successfully got in evidence under Rule 404B of five prior occasions where he had given favorable treatment to other folks with no inkling of a quid pro quo. And Judge O'Toole, in our case, took a break in the middle of trial, actually held oral argument in the middle of trial, heard from us, heard from the government, and then called the day early and spent several hours thinking hard about this issue. He came back, took the bench, and ruled in our favor. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that that was a potentially dispositive ruling because getting in the evidence of Jack Shaw's $500,000 loan to his friend Tony, his $100,000 loan to his son's tennis coach, tens of thousands of dollars given or loaned to other friends and coaches in need, that was just critical to normalizing his, essentially, his ostensibly abnormal behavior with Coach Brand. It's just, that's his state of mind. When a friend asks for money, Jack Shaw says yes. And here's five examples to show that was his state of mind. Now, I was going to say, there's a cultural component, too, that Bill might be able to speak to. And this was also another kind of critical point that other practitioners could take note of, I think. One of the things that we heard from some of the witnesses who um, were the recipients of these loans from Jack, more than one of them was, uh, uh, like Jack, um, someone who had been born in China, had come to the U.S., typically become a citizen, become a business person, was living here, uh, but still, you know, brought with them some of the uh, sort of cultural norms or cultural behaviors that they had learned growing up in China. And they told us that in, in Chinese culture, when somebody asks you for a loan um, and you have the ability to lend them the money, that uh, saying yes or saying no, it's not just uh, taken as a matter of uh, whether you 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 feel like you can lend money or not. It, it's a matter of great consequence. To ask somebody for a loan is to say, I trust you, I feel like you're my friend, and uh, I want to cement the friendship through this, through this ask and through your trusting me and letting me know that you want to be friends with me. And to say no under those circumstances is kind of to say to the other person, I could do this for you, but I'm not going to. It suggests you don't trust them. You don't want to be closer friends with them. You risk both of you losing face. Uh, we, we thought that it was a potentially small but very important point, again, to help the jury understand why somebody would make a loan like this uh, without any documentation, without any interest payments, without any fixed repayment date, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, we did a lot of research on this ahead of time because we were skeptical that evidence like this would be admissible. 
And it turns out that typically if you want to call a, um, an expert witness to testify about cultural context or what, what's normal in a culture, um, that typically is excluded. But lay opinion testimony about cultural context, the opposite is true. That's interesting. That's interesting. I, that's, I, would, I wouldn't have thought of that. So, so we we didn't have an expert testify about this, and as a result, we didn't have to provide any expert discovery. Um, it just came out of the mouths of witnesses who said, "You know what? I grew up, you know, just the same as Jack did, and I understood this. I understood why he was lending me five hundred thousand dollars, even though he he didn't know me that well, because where we grew up, you know, the culture we grew up in." And then gave the explanation, and the judge held that was admissible, and that way. Right. So you asked. I mean, you asked the question, or there's the answer. I'm sure there was an objection, motion to strike, or whatever. Did the judge take argument on that? Was the judge seem to be familiar with the evidentiary issue? I mean, obviously, this was a significant point. Yeah. So uh, in in this particular case, the judge uh, ruled ruled right away in our favor. And uh, I got the impression that this was something he had encountered before, because uh, um, this is a judge, Judge O'Toole has been on the bench for decades and probably has seen it all. I think for a, a different judge, you know, somebody who had less experience, probably it would have been more of a fight. Well, obviously, this is important evidence, the other similar acts, the, the Chinese cultural evidence, Without that, this could have been a real tough sell to the jury <laughs> that yeah. this, this loan would have been made. How did you deal with the cooperating witness? Did you say his name was uh, Rijek? Yes. How, how did you deal with him? Candidly, the cross of Mr. Rijek was, from a defense attorney's perspective, an embarrassment of riches uh, because there were so many different, pretty obvious lines of cross. So once we got to trial, that was the fun part. The hard part was getting the material, getting the goods so that you could walk into trial ready to go. And that required a couple of different things. So what were the big lines of cross for Mr. Rajik? One was his changing narrative. The fact that he had, when the story first broke of these payments between Jack and Coach Brand, he initially told everybody, his the, the press, uh, in divorce court filings, in interviews with the FBI, to his attorney, who then repeated to the U.S. Attorney's Office, he told everybody nothing illegal had happened. So part of our case was getting, collecting, pushing the government to give us records, notes of proffers, attorney proffers, so we could have the goods to show how his story evolved and changed. And the key point there is his story changed only after he learned the government had him dead to rights for stealing from his own charity. Right. So, and that was information that we had to push to get from the U.S. Attorney's Office because that was information that came through in an attorney proffer. And attorney proffers, there's an argument to be made that it's not necessarily Brady or Giglio because it's not direct words of the defendant. So we had to push to get that. Tell our listeners what Brady and Giglio materials are. So Brady essentially means any information that is exculpatory, something that shows your client is innocent. Giglio is a type of Brady material, but it's more specific. It's information that could be used to impeach a government witness, something to make the jury not believe what that witness is saying. And so we had to push hard through a campaign of letters with the government to get 
the full universe of what we believed was appropriate Brady and Giglio material, including all the information we could about those attorney proffers, the things that Alex Roderick's lawyer said on his behalf to the government. So that was one line. You mean when you when you had call or write the prosecutor and said, please give me all Brady material, they don't just simply turn it all over at once? That doesn't happen. <laughs> I mean, and I don't want to throw stones at the at the office because I think the AUSAs working this case you know, we're working at absolute good faith and did provide some materials earlier than they did than they needed to in some respects. But yeah, it is a feature of the criminal justice system that the squeaky wheel defense attorney generally gets more grease. Not always, but often. And in this case, that was true. And these were proffers by the cooperating witnesses attorney about what his story, what he would testify to, and they changed once the government had the goods on the cooperating witness. Is that basically what you learned? That's right. The attorney, Mr. Roderick's attorney goes in multiple times and says nothing illegal happened. Government tells the attorney, we don't believe you. And by the way, we've got questions about your client's spending of tens of thousands of his charity's money on his own kid's college tuition. And wouldn't you know it, the very, you know, within weeks, Mr. Roderick is flipped and is telling, right. saying exactly what the government wants him to say. So that, that, was a, that was one key point. The second one is perhaps more interesting even, uh, and this is, was unique to Mr. Rajik, at least in my experience. Once he signed up as a cooperator, we got a tip from an anonymous source that Mr. Rajik had committed PPP loan fraud in the midst of COVID. He had a fencing business. We were told that he had applied for COVID relief loans and then had spent that money on himself instead of spending it to pay the salaries of his employees. And this was a crime that, look, obviously that would be damning to someone's credibility. It also is damning to their bias. You know, what better reason to say what the government wants than to have them protect you from not just the crime being charged, but these other crimes too. But we had no way to really investigate it on our own because we're not the government. We can't just go subpoenaing, sending blunderbuss wide subpoenas to banks or to Mr. Rajik. So we made the strategic choice to tell the government our good faith suspicions uh, and demand that they investigate their own cooperators' behavior. And they did. I mean, th th this came as news to the government when you told them about the PPP fraud? That's right. It was news to them. And we, we made that request actually in 2019. And then it wasn't until the eve of trial that we got a production of over a thousand pages of loan applications, bank statements, et cetera, that we believe showed he had in fact committed PPP loan fraud. The government, when they produced it, simultaneously produced material that they thought showed, no, he hadn't, he was relying on his accountant. And by the way, even if he did, you shouldn't be able to admit this as evidence. They filed a motion to exclude it, but we won that motion practice. Enough of it came in that I think we were able to effectively show the jury that this guy was a liar through and through. All right, so he has, this shows that he, he has motive to cooperate, right? Because he's facing- Absolutely. Up, he's facing potential charges. He hasn't been, he hadn't been charged yet, let alone convicted, mm -hmm. but this mm -hmm. is looming over him. And and that's, yeah. that's how it gets in, I guess. That's exactly right. It goes to his bias, his credibility. And and look, there are U.S. attorney's offices that often refuse to give you know full non-prosecution agreements like the one this uh, that Mr. Roger got because they want to avoid this exact line across. You know, they'll kind of force people to eat a charge, plead guilty to at least something. But that wasn't the choice made by the office, and that gave us a window to attack. And I think, in the end, I think it was effective for us. But so you crossed him for five hours. Was there any redirect? 
considerable redirect um, and, and you know, the very capable lawyers on the other side. So uh, the AUSA who led that side did a great job, but just you, you can't fight facts. Uh, I think right. he, when you put on a bad apple, uh, eventually that bad apple is going to start to get soft and, and, and get squishy. And that's what happened. And ultimately, ultimately, hopefully stomped. I don't know if we stomped him, but we came close. Maybe. But um, was the recross after the redirect? Actually, we were prohibited from recross. Oh. We had a couple okay. lines and the judge was ready to move it along. And we live we live with the judge's decisions. OK. Is there anything else about this trial that stands out in your mind that you think was important to getting the acquittal? So, you know, John, I think one of the main lessons of this case, the importance of the conventional wisdom, I think, that in in every criminal case, the best strategy is to play offense and not defense. Um, and that's easier, much easier to do in a civil trial, really, than in a criminal trial, because often in a criminal trial, you as the defendant, you don't have anything to work with. But, but it's it's absolutely essential because the government starts a criminal case with so much credibility because they represent the United States. People understand that lots of people do things wrong, but very few people find themselves sitting in federal court facing an indictment. And they assume that if, if the person's sitting there, they probably did something wrong. And the only way to level the playing field is to immediately put the government on trial. And by that, what I mean is to convince the jury that the government somehow has gotten it wrong. Um, and, you know, how they've gotten it wrong, how is de depends on the facts. It may be possible to show that they did an inadequate investigation. They ignored exculpatory evidence. They misunderstood key facts. Um, in this case, we argued there was a rush to judgment based on newspaper headlines about this home sale that first, you know, where, where our client bought, bought the coach's home for so much more money than, than it turned out to be worth. That was front page news in the Boston Globe above the headline. And it's the kind of thing that prosecutors just can't ignore. It makes them think a case is just dropped into their laps. And uh, we argued that um, in this case, they had sort of committed all of these faults. They had, they had been sort of intoxicated by those newspaper headlines. They made a rush to judgment. Once they decided that there was a bribery scheme, they began having selective vision and could only see facts that fit their narrative. They didn't bother investigating things that might have proved them wrong. Um, they, they discounted exculpatory evidence or minimized it. And, um, and of course, you can almost always uh, attack the government for relying on a cooperating witness because cooperating witnesses, by definition, always have a motive to lie. They're getting some kind of benefit or expecting some kind of benefit in exchange for their testimony. So, um, you know, and, and in this case, we were able to pair that with a very, very extensive investigation of the facts, just, just as Mike said at the outset, you know, a, a lot of times defendants just play defense. They just think I'm going to take whatever evidence of guilt the government gives me and I'm going to try and poke holes in it and, and then tell the jury those holes equal reasonable doubt. And sometimes that's all you can do. But if there's any possible way to build an affirmative case, it's worth doing. And, uh, you know, I think this case is a great example of that, that we we um, did something that, you know, I, I was a, uh, a prosecutor myself in the Boston U.S. Attorney's Office um, for, for almost 20 years. 
And I can't remember a criminal trial in all that time where there was more than maybe one, two, three defense witnesses at the most. And we put on 12 defense witnesses. That was just one fewer witness than the government put on. And we took as much time to put on our case as they did to put on their case. And uh, you know, we, we were able to humanize our client. We were able to disclose things to the jury, show that the government had overlooked really important facts. And I think that that wound up making a huge difference in our case. Did Mr. Zhao testify? No, he did so, not. Yeah, he did not testify. Well, which... to receive, look, I'm not a criminal lawyer, but you know what I hear is if the defendant doesn't testify, he's toast. Obviously, that's wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, that, I, I don't. I don't agree with that. Just because I have seen many cases over the years where uh, defendants have gotten acquitted without testifying, and conversely, I've seen cases where defendants testified and, and didn't do themselves any favors. Um, I don't think that was our worry here. You know, our worry here is that the burden of proof is a really important fact in criminal cases. Um, the jury typically will hold the government to a very, very high standard as they should, given what's at stake. But once the defendant himself takes the witness stand, the burden of proof goes out the window. Because at that point, either the jury believes the defendant or they don't. And if they believe the defendant, if for any reason they don't believe the defendant, they assume he must be guilty. And so, you know, you gain potentially a lot by putting your client on the witness stand because oftentimes there's facts that only the defendant knows and can talk about. And, you know, the jury may well like your defendant and trust and believe him. Uh, and, and that can make all the difference in the world. But but you then sacrifice that huge advantage, one of the very, very few advantages that defendants get in criminal trials, which is that burden on the government. So, And related to that, John, one of the reasons we didn't have to take that high risk, high reward endeavor here is that we had knowledgeable family members who could essentially tell the most relevant facts about why Jack did what he did, about how qualified his sons were as fencers, as students, as people, because we had incredibly honest, likable witnesses lined up to testify. Jack's wife testified. Both of Jack's sons testified. Harvard's current fencing coach, never been interviewed by the government. We put her on. She testified about the realities of how Harvard recruiting works, how important the donations are of families like the Zhao's and how great a person and how great a fencer Edward Zhao, the younger brother, was because she coached him for two years. We put on a Harvard fencer. The government never talked to a single Harvard fencer about these kids. We did. So I think being the truth teller, that's a, a theme I've heard uh, the other defense attorneys use. We were the truth tellers in this case, I think, because of the investigation we did and because we were fortunate to have a client who had lived a life of such generosity and kindness to others that when he was charged, his friends didn't run to the door. His friends ran to us, willing to testify, willing to talk, willing to help if they could, if their honest answers would be helpful, they were willing to give them. And that's a testament to who our client was. So maybe that's the first rule. If you can find a, uh, an innocent and very well-liked client, snatch them up. <laughs> right. With all the witnesses that you had, which you said unusual in a defense criminal case, did you give some thought to the order in which you would call them? 
Very much so. I think uh, wit witness order was extremely important. We knew that probably um, the most appealing facet of our case in the end were Jack's two sons themselves. They were incredible boys. Both of them were not only stellar uh, students, um, extremely talented, successful fencers, um, but they were just lovely kids, humble, uh, self-effacing, all about others, not about themselves. And we knew that the jury would would like them, and we knew that the jury would would credit Jack and Jack's lovely wife, who also testified, for turning these boys into who they were, um, would assume that they had set that kind of example for those boys. And so we we made those our last two witnesses. So that's what the jury went into the box fresh in their mind with. We've covered a lot of territory. It's been a fascinating inside baseball look at uh, the trial of a criminal defense case, a very high profile case, extremely rare. One of the only uh, two or three parents that actually went to trial and after so many had pled guilty, you got an acquittal. So uh, congratulations. You've been listening to Law Disrupted with me, John Quinn. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, lawdisrupted.fm. If you enjoyed the show, please share a link on social media and follow at JBQ Law or at Quinn Emanuel. Thank you for tuning in. Well, wasn't that amazing? It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff. Find out more at podcastpartners.com.